World's Finest Podcast, Episode 5. Michael David Sims, and with me is... James Dove. How are you, James? Doing pretty well. How's the job uh, going? Uh, not bad. Uh, it's, you know, it's retail, so there's the, the uh, common grief that you have to put up with from customers and all that, but uh, I just bought myself a laptop, so I'm very, very pleased. Is that what you're recording I'm, on right now, or have you not set it up No, I'm, I'm on my old computer because I haven't fully uh, installed Skype and all this other oh, stuff yeah. uh, on my computer yet, but that's... That's going to be my school computer, and it's going to be my new video editing machine, because I can use Adobe Premiere, and I'll be making music videos very soon again, which I'm very happy about, because I never wanted to put aside the uh, the Symphony and Metallica project that I've, I've working, I was working on. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to get back to work on that. So that's really all that's going on with me right now. Is it a Mac or a PC? That's PC. Uh, you got to tell me how... Uh the new uh, Windows operating system is. I'm I desperately need a new PC, and I've been thinking of switching over to a Mac just because I don't want the new the new Windows OS. Oh, Vista. Yeah, it's just you know they're still working the kinks out of XP, and how long has XP been around? You know, I don't want to get a new OS that's like totally susceptible to to bugs and shit. So I'm real hesitant to get it. Well, once I start playing with it more and more, I'll. Definitely let you know. Yeah, I do because I really haven't heard many good things about it, and those those Mac commercials, you know, Mac versus PC, those are really <laughs> enticing. I got to tell you, you know. <laughs> In fact, I would have already bought a Mac if they weren't more than I was willing to spend on a computer right now. You know, when when you, when you can go to Dell.com and get a computer, a really good computer for like a couple of hundred dollars, you know, like six seven hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. That's you know, that makes you kind of want to stay with, with a PC rather than going and spending $1,100 for a Mac, so... Well, you can still get uh, brand-new computers with XP on them, so... I've looked. I can't find anywhere. Um, whenever... Okay, as of a couple of weeks ago, when I would look on Dell, like, they would say you got XP with the free option to upgrade to Vista. But not last time I looked, which was, like, a week ago, that option isn't there anymore. They just automatically give you the new OS. Oh, I know for a fact. My the place I work at has XP laptops and computers. Oh, I may have to. I may have to look into that. Maybe I'll just phone Dell or something and just be like, "Okay, can I get XP, please? I don't want Vista." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really liked XP. I, I I did. I think it was my favorite OS up to date. So, but uh, we'll see how Vista goes. Yeah, yeah. I never really had any problems with XP at all. I liked it better than you know what was what was before it, two thousand, or was yeah. there one in between there? I don't know where was Millennium. That was a, a huge disaster of an of an OS. I don't know where that was. I don't know if that was after or before. 2000. I think it was like right after two thousand. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I like XP better than two thousand. So what are you gonna do? But uh, why don't you tell everybody who you might have bumped into? I mean, you, who you told me you you bumped into sort of before the recording. Oh yeah, well at work, um, <laughs> it was really busy. It was like uh, I think it was Saturday night or Monday night. I can't remember. Uh, 
one of my favorite wrestlers ever, Raven, walked right by me <laughs> at my register. But it was so damn busy, I couldn't even muster a Raven. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I choked and I couldn't say a damn word. It was, oh, it was so frustrating. But uh, hopefully he will come back because he was getting. I, I could tell he had his laptop with him. He was probably getting it repaired in our tech support. So hopefully that means that when he's back in town, he will stop by again, and I can be lucky enough to be there and and just scream, "Oh my <laughs> God, I love you, Raven!" Now, do you work in Florida, or do you no. work in? Because he's from Florida, right? Right. Well, yeah. He, I, th- I think he lives in like Clearwater, Florida, or some. I wonder what the like hell that. he was doing in your neck of the woods then. Getting his computer repaired, you know what I mean? Well, I think he may have a house here, oh. but because because uh, my friends have have all claimed to have seen him various places, like at malls or movie theaters, up or around where I live in Atlanta or Cobb County, mm-hmm. I should say. So, uh, so yeah, but he's a, he's apparently up here in Georgia a lot. Mm. So, this is probably one of those many times he was here. Yeah, yeah. Now, I could just tell it was him. <laughs> well, he's got a very distinct look. I've, I've seen, yeah, he I've does. I've into him a couple of times, you know, like at uh, comic conventions, because he's a mm-hmm. huge comic fan, as, as you know. Um, so I've seen him at, like, Wizard World Chicago a couple of times and a few other places, and, yeah, he, he's very distinct. It's, it's hard to confuse him with someone else. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, speaking of distinct looks, last time I had to do the intro by myself, and I kind of spoke about the Warner Brothers campaign for The Dark Knight Returns or whatever that new Batman movie's called. Mm-hmm. And there's that whole viral campaign that they're doing. Yes. Do you want to you want to talk about this cuz I got to speak about it. So, do you want to oh, I'm sorry. But you're talking about uh, uh I believe in Harley yes. Dent? Yes. Oh, uh, it's god, it's uh, brilliant. And they haven't even really hardly done much with the no. movie yet, but I love I love what they're really? doing. It's just it, having uh, Joker and Dent going back and forth through two different websites. Mm-hmm. It's just really cool. I know. We haven't seen anything like this before. No, no. We? The movie doesn't come out for a whole other year, but they already got a viral ad campaign going. It's got people talking. I mean, look at us. We're talking about it. There's people who, mm-hmm. you know, aren't even like comic book fans that are sitting here talking about this campaign that they got going on. It's, it's wild how... how 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 fast this has caught on, but I guess that goes to show you how much people love the Joker, even though even non comic book fans they just they know him they know him from Jack's portrayal they know him from uh, what was it Cesar Romero's pro- Cesar Romero right yeah from his right. portrayal they know him from the various cartoons and all that so people just love the Joker and they want to see him and I think that's why this is taking off you know like wildfire basically. Yeah, and I'm, I think I'm one of the few people who seems to have faith in Heath Ledger's acting ability. You and me both. But, uh, you and me both. I, I really think he can do a great job with Joker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know why people seem to have a problem with that casting. Um, it could be the loyalty to Jack. I, I'm not sure. It, it, could it, be. it could be that. It could be something else. But I was excited about it because he's not going to play it the same way Jack did. He's going to play it you know, very serious, I think. Um, Hopefully he'll be the, like I think maybe it was you that said uh, he he'll be the Joker that you every time you look at him you th- you you think you're gonna die. That's exactly the way it should be. It's like when you see the Joker, it's kind of like in the Joker's favor, you know, where he's he's in the car 
and he just stares <laughs> yes. at his name, Charlie, right? Yeah, uh, he just yeah. stares at Charlie. Doesn't say a word as he's driving past me. Just stares at him and smiles. And Charlie shits a brick. Because when you see the Joker, you should be <laughs> shitting a brick because you don't know if he's going to just walk up to you and say hi. You don't know if he's going to punch you in the face. You don't know if he's going to shoot acid on you. You don't know if he's going to rape your mom while he forces you to watch. You know, I mean, the Joker is a freaking freak. So, yeah, you better be scared of him, and I think that's how they're going to play him in this movie. And I, I, have, I have faith in Ledger. I really do. I, I, I... And, and no one Oh, definitely. That Anybody that, that thinks that, you know, they casted this wrong is, is crazy. I, I mean, look at how good a job Nolan did with the first movie. Do you really think he's going to screw up the sequel? Do you think he's just going to cast a pretty face just because he can? No, he, he cast he cast no. the actor that he thought was right, and I, I totally have faith. I absolutely do, and even though it's a year off, I am so stoked for this. Fear of Victory is the first episode we're going to tackle today, and this is, is this the second Scarecrow episode? Um, yeah, it's the second I know it's a, and it's the second Robin episode, I know that. Yes, that's true, too. Um, and in this one, the Scarecrow, um, he needs some money, so what he's doing is he's taking a small amount of his fear toxin, and he's distributing it amongst the top sports stars of the country, um, on the professional level, on the collegiate level, and he's then betting against the teams that those people play on so he can get a ton of money so he can make more of this formula and distribute it on a global level. He wants to create the, what does he call it at the end, the... uh, the, the biggest controlled experiment of fear or something like that. In that, history. In history, right. That's what he wants to do. That's his end game here. And in the process of giving it to one of the sports stars, Robin comes into contact with it because he just happens to be a dorm mate of this fellow. And so Robin has to overcome his fear um, as Batman and he take out the Scarecrow. That's pretty much the plot, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now I should I should correct myself here. I had said, remember in one of our earliest episodes, we were talking about how come Robin appears from time to time, and then he's gone. And yeah. I had said, you know, I thought it was because he was at college, so maybe the only time he teams up with Batman is when he's, you know, home on the weekends or for holidays or whatever. Well, mm-hmm. I had said, I didn't think we found out Robin was in college until um, the first appearance of Rachel Ghoul. Obviously, I was wrong, because this episode clearly shows him as being in college. Um, your thoughts on this? That was a decent episode. Uh, I, the animation was good at points, but horrible at other points. It was kind of a tale of two cities there. Um, really? What, point, uh, what What was going on? I didn't pick up on that. The uh, Well, first, uh, the good parts, I love the new Scarecrow design. Love, love, love it. It's much creepier like yes. it should be. Yes. And and I'm glad that they stuck with that throughout the rest of the uh, show into, and into Gotham Knights. They made it even better. Yeah. Um. But the animation with the sports was awful. It was just, like, choppy at best. Oh, okay. So that's what I mean when I say A Tale of Two Cities. It was great in areas, but it was horrible in other areas. Mm. Uh, It was a decent episode, I said. Um, I noticed that Bruce was in a lot more... It was much more into Batman mode, even when he was as Bruce Wayne in this. Especially at the end when he's talking to to Dick Grayson. Even uh, he's, He's not in costume, but he's still talking in Batman mode. In his deep, dark voice. Oh man, I didn't pick up on that. 
But one thing I, I, I didn't like about this was that Batman had test cats. That doesn't seem like something Batman would do. Yeah, that, that, that did kind of irk me as well. If, if you remember with the first Scarecrow episode, his, the, 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 the toxin that he gives you, it makes you, it makes your deepest fears rise to the surface. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, we see Robin being afraid of heights. That doesn't make sense. He was born into a circus as an acrobat. We see the football player being scared of monsters. And it's like, stuff. It, they just didn't make sense. They weren't bringing out their most deep-rooted fears. I mean, Robin's fear should have been along the same line as Bruce's, losing his parents, not of falling from a great height. Well, did you remember that he... I guess it was Batman said it. The uh, this particular toxin feeds off of adrenaline, so it could have been a different formula. You know, I guess I think it was a different formula, but it. You know, I did pick up on that, and yeah, I mean, you, you have a point, but I still don't buy it because when uh, do we get another Scarecrow episode soon? Yes, I thought we uh, did. Which one was that? And uh, the end of this episode, we're going to be reviewing uh, Dreams, Dreams and Darkness. Darkness. You know what? So I was wrong. I think that line I said about him wanting to pull the biggest experiment, the controlled experiment, is from that episode, not this one. No, the, no, you were right. That's from this episode because when they're in, they're in the rafters, Batman and Scarecrow, they, he says he yells that out at Batman right, as he's holding the vial does, over the he, crowd. He does say yeah. it in this one, and not he does. The other one? He does say that because I know he says, "If I drop this vial, something along the lines, if I drop this vial." you know, you'll see all these people clawing each other or something like that. But, okay, okay, so I... I, I if, are you sure it's in this one? I am 99% sure. But where, what was I saying before about the, about the fear, right? Right, you didn't buy it. Yeah, I still don't buy it. It's like, you know, okay, we'll, 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 for a brief second, we'll talk about dreams and darkness. If you look at that one, a lot of Batman's deep-rooted fears come to the surface again. The Joker, he's very clearly afraid of the Joker, and there's no reason he shouldn't be afraid of the Joker. He's afraid of losing Robin. Twice, he, he dreams up Robin's death. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, the first time we see the Scarecrow, that's what his formula is doing, is bringing forth your deepest fears. The next time, the third time we see the Scarecrow, he does it again. But the second time, his formula is completely different, and it, it just brings out nonsensical fears, like falling from great heights for Robin and this football player seeing monsters. I just didn't buy it. I just, I, I felt like the, the, the writers of this episode, or the writer, I should say, of this episode, kind of lost track of what the Scarecrow and his fear toxin is supposed to be about. I understand that. But then again, I, let me let me say this, because I don't want to get an email about it. I guess you could possibly justify Robin's fear of heights by noting that his parents did die thanks to a fall from a great height. So That's he true. would have... So, I, you know, I, on one hand, I don't buy it. But on the other hand, I could see someone trying to make a case of it. What, what else did, do you have to say about this episode? Trying to think of how I felt about Robin in this episode. He just, I guess I I, don't, I didn't like that he was afraid of heights either. Uh, that to me, at, at, the, at least at the very first, didn't make sense. I guess if I thought about it more often, like you said, if he was thinking about his parents, yeah, maybe. Right, but then they should have showed a, a reference to his parents dying. Yeah, then they wouldn't even have it. to show. They wouldn't even have to show his parents. Maybe just show two people silhouettes falling, and. You know, not not necessarily showing them hitting the ground, of course, right? But, but it, just it, showing them falling. Well, that's how they handle it in the forthcoming episode, Robin's Reckoning. We mm-hmm. see his parents' death in silhouette. They could have they could have done it here as well. 
if they would have showed that and then showed Robin being afraid of heights, or vice versa, it doesn't matter. As long as they address that his parents had died because of that fall, then I could buy it. But because they don't, you have to have a knowledge of Robin that the producers, the directors, the creators, whatever, did not give you in this episode. So, yeah, right. I know in the back of my head that's if there's a reason Robin's afraid of heights, that would be it. But the casual viewer, you know, a child who's watching this, or again, like I said, a casual viewer who's even our age and has never read the Batman comics, wouldn't know that. They'd be like, okay, whatever, he's afraid of heights, I don't get it, but he is. One thing I didn't, I don't know if, and me being a sports fan, I, sh- I guess I should have thought about this more, is the, uh, what was his name? Brian Rogers, was that his yeah. doormate? Yeah, yeah. At the very end, he gets this scholarship, but uh, he was cowering in fear and, and humiliating himself in front of these nationally known scouts and everything, and all of a sudden he gets this scholarship anyway. I just thought that was kind of weird. It is weird. Um, but I guess I can kind of understand it. Isn't there like a throwaway line explaining how it happened? Didn't they say he got another chance or something? I don't remember that. I could swear at the end there's a throwaway line, but I could be wrong. I didn't write it down. But you're okay. Here you go. I don't know a lot about sports. Okay, when when scouts do come, is that like your one chance? Or if you screw up, let's say you have a perfect season, and when the scouts are there, you screw up royally. Will they totally say, okay, we're not going to look at this guy anymore? Or will they look at your whole career? Oh no, they'll look at your whole career, but. The coward and fear thing. <laughs> yeah, the whole, the whole like, oh my god, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. Uh-huh. That now, if somebody did that in real life, yeah, they may not. I don't think any scouts would take them seriously ever again. Even if it came out that that was because of the scarecrow's uh, ear toxin. Well, if it was revealed in like a nationally nationally televised broadcast, uh-huh. yeah, then I could understand it. Then maybe I could say, okay, well they saw that. Yeah, they'll give them another shot. One of my favorite scenes is when Batman... Okay, Dick's hanging onto the building because, again, he's having uh, uh, an anxiety attack at the moment. And Batman goes falling. And he saves himself by shooting his grappling gun and he swings into, like, a woman's apartment. She's just, like, sitting there in her robe. And (laughs) she's like, oh, my! And then she sees that it's, you know, this broad-chested Batman. And she's like, oh, my! And then when he's leaving, he just gives her this, like, little smirk, like, hey, baby. It's like this really... Ma'am. Yeah, oh, is that, does, he, does he actually I think say he just says, You're I think right. he just says, ma'am. He does. It's like, this, it's like this totally cool moment where Batman's like, yeah, I gotcha. You know, like, you, you know Batman <laughs> can come back later tonight and get a little loving, you know? Yes. That was a yes, really funny moment right there. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting to see how women see Batman that way, or at least this woman sees Batman this way. You know, the whole thing with Batman is, you know, he's supposed to be scary. He's this big urban legend. But I guess women might find that kind of sexy because he's the big bad boy in black leather. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I guess so. Um, but getting back to the plot, I mean, so- sorry for that little distraction there. Um, getting back to the plot, much like I liked the uh, Nostromos's scheme in uh, Prophecy of Doom, I kind of like the Scarecrow's uh, scheme here. I do, too. It was well thought out. Uh, it used his Scarecrow's normal M.O., to get money. Yeah, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It's he clearly needs money for the chemicals that he uses and what's the best way to get money is to make a small dose and then distribute it amongst all these stars and bet. I think that was a really cool scheme. And I know one of the things if I remember correctly that you liked from the uh the, the first appearance of the scarecrow was how um Alfred handled Batman. Yes. He was he was the surrogate father. Right. Helping him. And I liked the way they showed Batman 
treating Robin here as Robin's going through all these moments of fear. Batman is like, regain control. He, he's not being very fatherly to him. He's like, toughen up, be a man, is basically what he's saying. And I, I kind of like the... I, if, when you compare these two episodes side by side, I kind of like how you can see that Alfred had more experience. or He was a, maybe a better father than Bruce was, if that makes well, sense. Yeah, well, and Bruce is not Alfred. I mean, you have they have to do it differently. Right. Because Bruce, Bruce has always been the tough love guy. But then after that, when they get in the Batmobile... You know, Robin's still a little shaken, and Batman's like, I'll drive real, real slow. slow. And he actually does. He doesn't <laughs> yes, feel out of the back cave. It just kind of goes slow. So, again, he's the tough love guy, but then a second later, I think maybe he realizes that he was a little too hard on Robin by saying, you know, basically, you know, suck it up. And he just yeah. went nice and Walk slow for the kid. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it's a little awkward. And that, that's the way their relationship should be. Yes, their father and son... But they're not a normal family. This, you know, Bruce, for all intents and purposes, is still a little boy, and now he mm-hmm. raised this little boy into manhood, and so their relationship is going to be very strained at times. And Bruce isn't going to know how to react to certain things. And when you compare that to how Alfred would have treated that situation and how he did treat that situation with Bruce, again, I think that's really good writing. Yeah, like I said, because you cannot have them have the same reaction because they're not. They're clearly two different sides of the spectrum there with Alf- Alfred and Bruce. Now, one of my bigger gripes with this episode, though, is that they practically give Robin's secret identity away to the Scarecrow. Batman, right at the end, they've got Scarecrow captured, and he says, I forget the exact dialogue, but he basically asks Robin if he's okay, like if if he's over his fear. And Robin says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing better now, or I'm getting there, okay? They say this right in front of the Scarecrow. Now, the Scarecrow's a smart guy. He's got to figure out he, he knows who he gave those telegrams exactly. to. Exactly, and he knows that he didn't give any of this st- stuff to, to Robin or Batman. He didn't gas them in this episode. So all he has to do is look back and see who's roommates of whom. And once he figures out that Brian Rogers has is you know has a roommate by the name of Dick Grayson, who's the ward of Bruce Wayne, he just has to put two and two together and go, wait a minute, Batman has all these cool toys, Bruce Wayne's rich, Robin suffered from my toxin, Oh, he just has to connect the dots, and I really didn't like that. That kind of irked me. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I totally agree, and I was thinking about that when I was watching the final scene in the rafters, and I didn't put, make a note of it, but mm-hmm. I definitely know what you're saying there. It would have been nice if they came back to it. Again, we've mentioned how there's continuity between episodes, usually little things in the background, um, mm-hmm. but it would have been nice if they came back to it and maybe had Scarecrow somehow figure it out, but... Whatever, they obviously didn't want to do that. Maybe Warner Brothers didn't want them to have anybody figure out Batman's secret identity, because that's a big deal. You know, I mean, in the comics, only a few of his villains have actually figured it out, and they rarely go back to it. Well, it does happen in the series, when Victor Hugo comes into play, but that's later on down the road. Yeah, but I don't think he... Does he figure it out? Oh, that's right, because he has the tape of it, doesn't he? Mm, I forgot about that, yeah. He figures it out, but nobody believes him. What else about this episode? Uh, that's really all the notes I've got. Uh, like I said earlier with the, the test cat thing, that, that that really, really irked me because Bruce Wayne is an animal rights advocate, and why would he put this 
deadly toxin on a cat. But one last thing that I really did like is, remember, this show is supposed to be set in modern times, but it's supposed to have that kind of old-timey 1940s feel to it. Hence mm-hmm. the way the cars look, the way, you know, the fact that almost all the TVs are in black and white. So I really dug the fact that they had the football players dressed like old-timey football guys. Yes, with the, the, the leather, leather helmets. helmets and barely, barely any padding, no face guards. You know, it almost looked like they were playing rugby. And I was like, there you go, that... that you know, again, the animators coming through, uh, you know, they're just really doing a great job creating this environment by saying, look, there's computers, so it's modern, but look at the way these guys are dressed. And I, I love the, the combination of those two kind of worlds, those two worlds, I should say. Okay, uh, our next episode is The Clock King. Uh, here what happens is Temple Fugit, who is... Uh, he's an accountant, isn't he? Yes. Or something? Yes. Something along those lines. No! Yeah. No, he's got a company that's like worth millions, so I'm not exactly sure what he does. Oh, that's right, because that's the whole beginning there. Right. But anyway, he's, a, he's the king of all anal retentive people. <laughs> the efficiency expert who is obsessed with being everywhere to the second on time. And... His background here is he's having a $20 million lawsuit filed against him, uh, and one of the, and he has a lawyer who, who is, uh, let's see, he was, he was on Mayor Hill's uh, staff, isn't he? The lawyer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's representing the other side uh, against Fugit. So, well, at the time we should know that Mayor Hill isn't yeah. Mayor Hill. He's like, I forget what he is at the time, but he's not a mayor yet. Oh, that's right. This, well, well, the, no, are you sure? Because it says re-elect. He has the re-election posters going. No, no, or is no. Because no. you're talking about when the episode begins, right? Yeah. Like, oh, you're right, because it goes seven years, seven years, it goes later. Seven years in the future. He calls right, him something right. else. I think he calls him Councilman Hill. When he gets on the right. train, he calls. He doesn't call him Mayor Hill. Like, he's like, I'm almost positive it's Councilman is what he calls him or something like that. Oh, you're right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. But Hill, regardless, Hill's a lawyer at the time, probably high up in the firm, if it's not his firm altogether. And we find out later on that one of the lawyers that works in that firm with Hill um, was, was the one who's, who was uh, heading the lawsuit against him. Right. And Hill uh, meets, by chance, just meets Fugit on a train and suggests that he stop being so uptight about everything and just take his you know take his coffee break 15 minutes later than he normally would but when he does when Fugit takes this advice it sets off a string of incidents where he gets he loses all his papers they fly all over a park because of a wind gust and they go into a fountain he falls into the fountain he's late for the lawsuit he loses it and he's ruined yeah so seven years you know they have one of those seven years later things he comes he comes back and he's adopted a clock motif with uh, you know little glasses with little clock hands on them, and uh, he's become obsessed with murdering Mayor Hill. We miss anything? No, that's pretty much it. All right, what did you think? Um, I don't know. This is one of those episodes where I see it and I and I think it's a really good episode, and then I'll see it again, and I'm like, eh, it was kind of average. That's I don't know what it is about this episode, but I can never my opinion never remains constant. Um, 
one of the things I truly do enjoy with this episode, every time I see it, is the animation. Especially when it comes to the Clock King, or what's his name, Fugit, right? Yeah. Yeah, Temple Fugit. Every time, you know, we see him, his animation is very stiff, very rigid, and that tells mm-hmm. you everything you need to know about the character right there. He's a very stick stiff, up ass. uptight, <laughs> stick-up-his-ass type guy. As you said earlier, he's the type of guy who everything is down to the second. I mean, he has that one copy boy working for him. And, you know, he comes in like two minutes late with the copies. And Fugit's like, I know for a matter of fact that it takes 38 seconds to make that number of copies. If you're late like this again, you're fired. And every time we see him, he's just rigid. And they they demonstrate that in the animation. I think that does a great, you know, that does a lot to establish the character in this episode and in all future episodes featuring him. Not that there's a lot featuring him after this. But there, there's enough, and every time we see him, he's constantly stiff as a board. Yeah, and he uses his uh, punctuality to even study Batman and get it, and study down to the mic. Uh, what is it? The uh, millisecond yeah. or, or whatever uh, he knows how long it takes him to throw a punch mm-hmm. or something. That's how obsessed this guy is with time. See, now that bothers me. Batman is supposed to be an urban legend, so there can't be that much news footage on him for this guy to study. That whole thing, I know it takes you one twentieth of a second or whatever to throw a punch. It's like, no, you wouldn't know that. Just like at one point when he's got Batman trapped in the bank vault, he's like, he tells him on the recording, he's like, you can't use your acetylene torch because it'll take longer than the amount of time you have. How does the clocking know that Batman has yeah, a torch? You know, that, I, yeah, I have a note about that. That upset me. Yeah, there, there's, it's, me. it's the minor flaws in this one that I think are what keep me from enjoying it every time I see it. You know, as I said, when I sometimes I see it and I think it's great, and other times I'm like, eh, ho-hum. I think those times when I'm ho-hum, it's because I'm looking at these flaws and I'm maybe overanalyzing it, or maybe I'm not. I don't know. But regardless, well, those flaws do get to me. Well, I would say, in and of itself, the episode idea is really good, mm-hmm. and you said the animation go, uh, makes it great, too, mm-hmm. but you, you, if you delve deeper and deeper and deeper into it, yeah, you, the episode clearly has a lot of flaws. I have a question about Fugit's age. How old does he look? At the beginning? Yeah, at the beginning, and then we'll just add seven years, since it's seven years later. At the beginning, he looks like he's at least in his 50s. He's got gray hair. Right, so you have to assume by the time this episode really gets rolling, he's in his late 50s, okay? Yet, Mm -hmm. there's a scene where he does a roll off a roof. It's like, wait, how is this nobody just being able to... How does this guy just roll off a roof like that? Well, and and the fight scene in the clock tower, too, all that. (laughs) Right. He's a 50-plus-year-old man who's just totally owning Batman in the fight. During that fight, remember how in in a real early episode, I took great joy in the fact that Batman never really threw a punch. He just sidesteps people all the time. Fugit (laughs) sidesteps Batman. And Batman just falls over like a a schlub. He just just goes falling off one of those giant, whatever those, one of the cogs in the clock. Well, yeah, I mean, it's and when he... Like you were saying earlier, the backflip off of the building onto the train that he knew would be there at the exact right. moment. Right. It's like, no, you, he's he, he's 50-something years old. There's no way this guy's going to do that. And there's no way he's going to own Batman. I'm sorry. But the reason I asked about his age is because when Batman pulls up the file on Fugit on his computer inside the car, not the Batmobile, but the car Alfred's chauffeuring him around in, 
mm-hmm. it clearly says Fugit is 36 years old. If you look at that, there's a couple of there's a couple of things about Fugit, I think including his credit card number or something, and it, it, next to his name in uh, parentheses is the number 36, which I have to assume is in reference to his age. Otherwise, I don't know what else the 36 is supposed to stand for, unless they're just unless that's there's 36 Temple Fugits, you know, <laughs> and this is the file he has on number 36. I don't know. Yeah, I kind of doubt that. Yeah, so, so it, this, not, to me yeah. that has to be his age, and it just doesn't jive with the way he's drawn. Well, one thing I did like about this episode was Alfred. He was in rare form with all of his his one-liners when he's toting Batman around in the in the car. How do you mean? I didn't I wish I didn't write any of these. And down. I wish I could have written them down, but I just I just wrote down Alfred is in rare form here on my notes. Oh. But he was hilarious. Okay, I'll, I'll take your word for that. I'm not remembering it, but I'll definitely take your word for it. Um, and the, a little interesting thing about this episode is that it's it's all in the daytime. Mm-hmm. And the reason I mention that is because <clears throat> because of that, Batman can't be out in the Batmobile. Um, if he's to remain again this this urban legend, he can't be. You know, you can't have this giant car roaming around the streets of Gotham in the daytime. So because of that, it's really cool that he's got Alfred chauffeuring him around. I thought that was that was kind of neat. And I don't know if we ever see that again. And I wish we could see that more, where you see Alfred kind of being his Watson. Just helping him out, giving him a little extra clues, giving him some insight he might not have uh, seen himself. And again, just just playing off of Batman, because that's when Batman works best, in my opinion, is when he has someone to play off of, someone who's not as dark as him. Be that Robin, be that Alfred, be that Batgirl, be a Commissioner Gordon. I don't care. He needs someone to play off of. The loner always needs someone to play off of. I mean, even someone like Wolverine, you know, he's great from time to time, but you need him to play off a Jubilee or a Kitty Pryde or even an Xavier or Cyclops. One of our goals with World's Finest Podcast is to mention any Easter eggs we come across. And I know you're going to mention some later when we get to Matt as a Hatter, correct? Oh, yes. Now, there are a ton of Easter eggs in this episode. So I'm just going to read these from my notes. So pardon if it sounds like I'm reading from... Notes, because as I just said, that's what I'm doing. Okay, Temple Fugit's address is 362 Brayfogle, B-R-E-Y-F-O-G-L-E. That is in reference to Norm Brayfogle, who had very lengthy runs on uh, various Batman titles throughout the late 80s and early 90s. Um, If you want to search out this guy's work, and I highly recommend that you do, he's a very good artist, and he really helped define Batman during that era. You can find his work in Batman 455 through 466, 470 to 479, 492 to 495, and 556. Um, I want to say he had... Okay, yeah, here, I got some more right here. Detective Comics 579, 582 to 594, 601 to 621, 627, and 659. He also illustrated a story called Birth of the Demon, which was the origin of Ra's al Ghul. And I think we're both fans of Ra's al Ghul, so that's really cool. In fact, I know we're both fans of Ra's al Ghul. Um, He launched, he helped launch that series, Shadow of the Bat, I think he did the first six issues of that. He did that with Alan Grant, who our European listeners will know him as uh, having had runs on Judge Dredd, but he also worked on Legion for DC, and uh, when Lobo had his own ongoing series, um, he was, uh, Alan Grant did that too, so... I'm just I'm just trying to show you all the guys you know, some of the guys that Bray Fogel worked with. Let's see, do I have anything else on him? Oh, here's a little interesting tim- tidbit about uh, Bray Fogel. He was the first artist to draw Tim Drake as Robin. He didn't create Tim Drake. 
Tim Drake was in the Batman books for a little while, but he's the very first artist to draw him in the Robin outfit in one of the comics. And if you want to know more about uh, Bray Fogle, you can go to his website, Norm Bray Fogle. Again, that's B-R-E-Y-F-O-G-L-E dot com. And there's a really good interview with him and Alan Grant at, sorry about this address, it's, it's kind of long here, A-D-E-L-A-I-D-E-C-O-M-I-C-S and books, B-O-O-K-S dot com. Slash G R A N B R E Y dot H T M. If you didn't catch that, I'll post it at the forums uh, in the in the feedback thread. Now, again, there's a couple of more references. There's there's one street sign that's Wiesner Street. That's that 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 that's got to be a reference to something, but I don't know what. So I apologize for that. There's also a Toth Street. T O T H T O T H. That's in reference to Alex Toth who was a comic book artist, but he was mainly known as an animator. So, of course, these guys are going to look up to him. The guys animating this show, I mean. And he is most famous for doing a lot of design work on Space Ghost, Johnny Quest, Super Friends, and Birdman. So a lot of his uh, creations still exist to this day, because, you know, a lot of those cartoons were made famous or found new fame on Cartoon Network and the Adult Swim line a couple of years ago, you know? And then, uh, last but not least that I have here, when we see Toth Street, the cross sign says Kurt. It looks like it's cut off, so I don't know, you know, the rest of Kurt there. But I have to assume that's in reference to Harvey Kurtzman, or Kurtzman, pardon me, who is the co-creator of Mad Magazine. So, of course, these guys who grew up reading comics were also going to grow up reading Mad Magazine. What little boy didn't grow up reading Mad Magazine? You know, I mean, think about it, you know. Um, and he also created little, or I think co-created Little Annie Fanny, who was a character that ran in Playboy from 1962 till 1988. And then the character was resurrected in 1998 by different artists. But I'm not sure that that's a reference to Harvey Kurtzman, but I think it is. Because the only other choice, that the only other person that could be referring to is Jack Kirby. And that would be a very obscure reference to Jack Kirby. Um, and I'll tell you why in a second. I want to get my facts straight here. Just hang on. Because Jack Kirby wasn't his real name. It was uh, it was Jack Kurtzberg. But I don't see them making a reference to Jack Kirby's real name when he's known by Jack Kirby. Anytime they want to put a reference to Kirby, you just put the word King or you just put the word Kirby in there. You're not going to put Kurt. So there we go. I'm, I'm done with my little Easter egg spiel. <laughs> I think my favorite scene, just like five-second uh, span of this episode, was when he just loses it. Fugit, I mean, when he, after the court scene, he's like, ah! That is oh, a yeah. great, that is a great face that he gives. Right, that's the one time he's not rigid, that he becomes very much a cartoon character, and he's almost putty-like. Yes. Where his mouth is just agape, his hair's all crazy, you know, his eyes are just little dots. Yeah, that's the one moment where he snaps, where he's no longer rigid. But going back to that scene... Um, him going crazy, and more specifically, him falling into the fountain and losing his documents. And I'm, I'm seriously asking here, wouldn't there have been copies of those documents? Yeah, on a computer or something? Somewhere, something. I mean, there had to have been... Carb- okay, figure this was... Let's say this episode took place in 1992, when it first aired, okay? Mm-hmm. And the beginning happened seven years before that, so we're talking 1985. There would at least have been Xeroxes, or... Um, carbon copies of those documents. I just have to assume there would have been. So there's a part of me that doesn't buy what happened in the courtroom. But again, someone could make an argument 
by saying, well, he didn't have enough time to go and get the copies. That's what, And that's yeah. what I would say. I have to uh, admit, I would say that, too, just because it seemed like he was on his way to the courtroom with those documents printed off. You're right. He didn't, you know, and he didn't think he would have he would drop those things and need to go all the way back. Okay. So he didn't allow he didn't allot himself that time. That's true. You're right. I'll, I'll take back what I had said there. You're absolutely right. I was wrong. That was cool. Um, now at the end, here's another irksome point for me. After the clock tower, you know, there's the big accident in the clock tower, and Batman survives. And Commissioner Gordon says something to the effect of, "Oh, I don't think he survived." And then Batman says, "If I could, he could." What? He's putting Clock King on his level. Yeah. Which makes no sense at what all. What the hell? There's there's just no way. I mean, granted, they did show that Clock King is obviously a superior fighter to Batman, at least in the context <laughs> of this episode. But still, okay, Batman surviving that fall, sure, I can buy. But some schmuck who used to be whatever Fugit used to be? I, I don't buy, I don't. I hate that line. I hate that closing line. Even, even on the days when I do like this episode, I hate that closing line because it's such bullshit. It's mm-hmm. absolute bullshit, and it, it's almost kind of like, I'm sorry, it's just bullshit. I'm just going to say it again. <laughs> It's bullshit. It is. Uh, Fugit, for those of you who care, was voiced by, oh, shoot, I can't read my own hand. Alan right Rackins. Now. Alan Rackins, thank you. I couldn't read the last name here. Who, of course, was uh, Douglas Brackman on L.A. Law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I grew up watching L.A. Law. I used to love that show. In fact, until uh, the age of 13, I wanted to be a lawyer because of L.A. Law. So um, when I, I when I realized that it was um, Brackman who was voicing Fugit, I was like, "Ooh, that's really cool!" I, I gained a new respect for the character. is basically the story of Batman trying to get to the scene of where his parents were murdered all those years ago. Um, he visits there every year with Dr. Leslie Tompkins, and I believe this is her first appearance. And we also get the second appearance of... Second? Third? Second appearance of Roland Daggett? Second. second. If you count Fate of Clay, one episode, so right. second appearance. Right, which of course we do. And um, as he's trying to get there, this this scheme, this this scheme of Daggett starts to unfold in front of Batman and even in front of Doctor Tompkins, where Daggett is trying to destroy Crime Alley so he can buy the property on the cheap and then rebuild it as uh, condominiums and just high priced housing. Um, and as Batman's trying to stop what's going on in Crime Alley and meet Leslie to go visit the scene of his parents' murder. All these various things get in his way. Um, shoot, I'm trying to remember some of the crimes, and I can't even remember what all of them were. Not even all of them were crimes. Some of them were just uh, yeah, the trolley car, the trolley car breaking, and you know he having to stop it, and all this and that. This episode is really just meant to be. I mean, there's there's a lot of action in it, and there's this story with Daggett, but it's really just meant to be about Batman basically visiting his parents' quote unquote grave. That that's all it is. It's original. There's no bat quote-unquote bat-villains like Joker, Penguin, all of those guys. None of them are in this episode. That's true. Um, and the episode shows that Batman has become a fixture in Gotham. Whether he's urban legend or not, you know, he... I loved how he talked to uh, Nitro the t- and the other thug whose name escapes me at, at the moment. Uh, 
Crocker, I think. Yeah, Crocker. Yeah, Nitro and Crocker. He refers to them by their names and knows their parole stipulations. That I loved. That was fantastic. Because you know Batman's going to have files on these guys. Mm-hmm. Like, at this point, he's been in the game for a while now. So, yeah, yeah. he's definitely going to know even the petty criminals who just keep you know going in and out of the penal system. And, uh, as we said, this was the debut of Leslie Tompkins, mm-hmm. who's an ardent pacifist. Uh, and she does seem to lack common sense to me, because why would... She walks into this building where two guys are are rolling blasting caps around yeah and says what are you doing there yeah i didn't like that i don't know leslie Tompkins, the character i love because she provides a foil to uh to batman she tries to get batman to stop you know the crusade of you know which of of violence which is really what she considers it i think and i appreciate that they have a character like that there but she she came across as like dense, I think, at moments in this episode when she like when she walks up into that building. Yeah, it, it was one thing for her to walk up into the building, but it was another thing for her to try to stop them. Yeah, it's like she knew Batman was coming. She could have just waited ten minutes for the guy, and and had him handle the situation. But mm-hmm. they had to stretch out the episode somehow, and I guess in their opinion, the easiest way to do it was to make Doctor Tompkins look a little dim. Uh, what about you? Well, starting from almost the very beginning, this episode has, like, a really cool, subtle moment. Batman is doing his exercises. First, he's on those bars, pushing himself up and down. Pardon me, I don't know the name name of the exercise. And he's watching Roland Daggett uh, talk about Crime Alley and how it used to be... What was it? What, what, what did it used to be called before Crime Alley? Uh, something Row, wasn't it? Yeah, Gotham Row or something. They're talking about this area that used to be this very posh. You know, it's where you went to go see cinema and and, and just whatever. Just go to the club and all these things. And, you know, he's talking about how it, you know, regressed into this into this slummy neighborhood. And as Batman's watching this, if you look at or excuse me, Bruce, because he's in Bruce Wayne mode there. If you look at his face, you can see the anger on his face because this is where his parents died. And now he's watching this program about this area where his parents died, and he's watching this absolute schmuck in the form of Daggett trying to come off as this humanitarian by cleaning up the area, talk about the area where his parents died, okay? So he's doing that, and his face gets angrier and angrier, and then Batman starts on the heavy bag, and he starts real slow. But the more Daggett talks and the more Summer Gleason covers what happened to, to the area that became Crime Alley, Batman just starts, or Bruce, I should say, just starts laying into the heavy bag. And if you actually listen, his punches get faster and faster and more violent. And it's one of those rare moments where you get to see Batman, or again, Bruce, lose absolute control. And he just gives in to his anger. And he just gives in to all the... Just the rage that has filled up inside him. And I've seen this episode many times, and I never noticed it until this viewing. So that's one of the things I really dig about what we're doing here with World's Finest Podcast, is it's giving me the opportunity to go back and see the subtle little things I missed. It's like last time, we spoke about how there might be something going on between Hagen and his assistant. Remember we spoke about, I was, remember I had asked if maybe they had some sort of gay relationship going on. Mm-hmm. And I never really picked up on that before. And maybe, again, I was reading into it. But in this, I'm not reading into what's going on. Batman's punches do get faster and more violent the it's more the, the, the Crime Alley segment goes on. It's a, the sweat starts pouring out more yep, and more, too. Yep, you can tell he's not a happy camper in that moment. 
one other note I have here, just as a side note, is the guy who did the voice of Nitro was the same guy who did the voice of uh, one of the weasels in Roger, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, Butt Weasel, who is only the only character greater than Captain Clown. Oh, my God, James. Oh, my God. Um, do you mind if I ask how old you are? I am 24. Oh, my God. So you know him as, as a character from... Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I know him as Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley. Oh, my God. I'm not that much older than you, but, jeez, oh, my God. That just, oh. Because I, I was going to make mention that this is Squiggy, and you start talking about the character. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's going to say, I'm thinking to myself, he's going to say it's Squiggy. He's going to say it's Squiggy. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, he was one of the weasels in Roger Rabbit. I'm like, oh, I'm <laughs> such an old man. Well, right, well, now, Roger Rabbit did come out in, uh, was 88 or 89? So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm still old, no matter how you slice it. Anyways, anyways. (laughs) Okay, if we go back to the episode, uh, The Forgotten. Okay, remember Bruce befriends those two guys? There was the tall, bald, black dude, and there was the short, kind of pipsqueaky white guy. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what the white guy's name was? I don't remember. It wasn't Leroy, was it? Or was that the black black guy? No, no, no. Hang on, let me see. Riley? Riley, that's it. Okay, well, if you look, when they show, when they're doing the the segment on Crime Alley, one of the people who's picketing Daggett's plan to basically uh, clean up the area, I could swear is Riley. He's just hanging around in the background. He's kind of on the left-hand side with just a picket sign. He doesn't have a line, and I'd swear it looks just like him. And it would make sense if it was him, too, considering his situation. Yeah, although, you know, Bruce, at the end of that, at the end of uh, Forgotten, does say, if you ever need a job, Call me. That's true, but who knows if they ever called him. Yeah, who knows. And you could almost claim that, I mean, if you want to go even further, you could say that this episode maybe happens before that one, too. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. You, know, you never know, play. because they play with time so much in these episodes. Right, right. Just because we see them in this order doesn't necessarily mean they happen in this order. You know, we like to think they do, but who mm-hmm. knows? Who knows what the producers are thinking? But then again, this brings up what I mentioned in our last show, in that they reuse models all the time. You had... Remember, you said you thought you saw Sherman on the bicycle. Right. And I had said... Even though it was in Ohio. <laughs> right, exactly. And remember, I had said that I think the wife of the other guy from The Forgotten appears later on in this episode when Batman stops the trolley car. Mm-hmm. So they're reusing her model, so maybe they did reuse Riley's model in this for just one of the background characters. I could because be wrong, but who I, w- knows? I wouldn't be surprised because these you know, the writers of the show do that, are experts at that, so... Um, and speaking of that trolley car scene, that is like absolutely intense. Yes, it is. Batman's trying to get on it. He, you know, he can't break the door down for whatever reason. I don't know why he can't kick in a freaking door. Um, but then, you know, positioning the Batmobile in front of it and just like putting on the reverse turbines. Oh my God. I love that scene. I have always loved that scene. Even as a little kid, the first time I saw this, I was like, holy crap. That's like the coolest Batman thing I've ever seen. And then, and then when it's finally over and he puts the shields on it, like in the original Batman movies. Yeah, as much as I dislike <laughs> the original Batman movies, that is one of the things that I will give them credit for uh, adding to the Batman mythos. I think they added it to the Batman mythos. The fact that he'd have to shield his car up on the rare occasion when he does leave it out in public. Um, but one of the things I really dig about that scene, though, is right at the end when he's it, it, he's got it slowed down, it's stopping, and it just bumps the car in front of it. It's just like, <laughs> yes. bump! It's real cute, because you're thinking he's going to crash into these and kill all these people, and then all of a sudden it's just like, tink, and it's over. You know, mm-hmm. 
Um, but I, I also dig when he gets out of the car and everybody's like, oh my God, it's Batman, it's Batman. Oh, oh, oh. and they're all just standing around in awe of this guy and he doesn't look at them. He doesn't acknowledge them. He just locks up the car and goes flying off on his zip line. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. He doesn't, unlike, you know, that episode where he looks at the woman and he's like, ma'am, you know, <laughs> he'll acknowledge her because he knows what he can come back and do later, but he's not going to acknowledge these freaks. Um, can I rattle off some more Easter eggs from this one? By all means. Okay, well, the two obvious ones are when we see Dr. Tompkins' mailbox. Her neighbors just happen to be Bruce Tim and Eric Radomski, who, of <laughs> course, are producers and directors on this show. But some other ones people might not realize are at one point... Um, they, someone, I forget who, someone says that something, and I don't remember what, is happening on the corner of Finger and Broom. Finger is Bill Finger, who a lot of people don't realize is the co-creator of Batman. Most people think that Batman was simply created by Bob Kane. That's not true. He had a co-creator in the form of Bill Finger. Um, the other one, John Broom, he created, like, most of Flash's rogues gallery. The Silver Age's Flash's rogues gallery. He also created the Guardians of the Universe, the, the Owens that give the Green Lanterns their power rings. And he also created Elongated Man. And, here's the big one, he created Detective Chimp. <laughs> there you go. Excellent. Excellent. At one point we see a truck that says, on its side it says, J. Olson and Sons, photographic something, there's a word I can't read, discount prices. Clearly Jimmy Olsen they're referring to there. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? Did you um, catch that? No, I didn't actually. There's, it's when Batman, it's the truck that Batman locks Nitro and Crocker in. As he's approaching them, if you look at the side of the truck, it says J. Olson. Where he breaks the handle off of? Yeah. It says J. Olson and Sons, photographic. Again, there's a word I can't read. Discount Uh, prices. Oh, I guess I didn't think about Jimmy Olsen. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I should have. Now, granted, (laughs) later on we would meet Jimmy Olsen in this world, but when they were doing this, they didn't know that. And, hey, I like the fact that they just put J. Olsen because maybe you could say it's like Jimmy's uncle, James. (laughs) Maybe he's a James as well. Who knows? But clearly a nod to Jimmy Olsen and him being a photographer. Speaking of Batman locking the guys in that truck, any thoughts on that? I mean, he doesn't know if he's going to be able to clear this area of the bombs, and he just locked these two guys in a truck. Again, yeah. Batman being a little shady, you know, kind of maybe maybe crossing that line, and if he's going to kill or not. Or not necessarily kill, but at least allow people to die. Yeah, I guess when I think about that, you're probably right there, because I don't see how he could have gotten them away. Yeah. I mean, granted, these are two guys that deserve it, and you know, of course, okay, they got away. But at the same time, it was, I don't know, it just... I think I was too engrossed by the fact that he was saying, so, Nitro, uh, going into the arson racket again, or whatever he says. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would just, uh, that's probably what was with me right there. I was too, like, oh my God, that's so cool. No, no, I'll admit, it's a really (laughs) cool scene, and him pulling off the handle, you know... It was a very Batman moment, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it bothers me because Crime Alley does go boom. Batman yeah. does not save the day at all. He, well, he saves that one building, and he saves Leslie from be, be dying. Okay? He, but, well, he's, uh, I think Tompkins says that uh, you only... Uh, I think she says... Or it was either him or her or, or Batman says directly to Daggett, uh, you only blew up some of... Your, your cronies here only blew up a bunch of abandoned buildings. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's how they explained it. Oh, that's right. We do see the cronies at the end. I forgot about that. Yeah. I forgot that they come back because Batman is, he's got, he's carrying them. He's, he's got them by their collars and we see Tompkins. And then we also see the people who are in that one hotel. So, okay. Pardon me. I did forget that we do see them again. Okay. So I guess they made it. Well, that just, that brings up something that kind of irks me is, um, 
Well, now that now I think about that again, uh, see, the guy, you have the guys who are going to testify against Daggett. Mm. And then Daggett just, pr- like, brushes it off as if it's nothing. Mm. You know, and I assume, I know he has to keep up appearances and all, mm. but uh, you would think that he, he should still be worried because these guys are going to testify in court against him. But I don't think co-conspirators' testimony is admissible in court, so yeah. I could be wrong there. I don't know. But, you know, it could always be one of those deals where they know not to testify against Daggett because he'll help them out down the line. You know, I mean, you watch any you watch any mob movie or any mob TV show, the whole thing is, okay, let's, let's look at Reservoir Dogs. If you look at Vega, Vic Vega, Mr. Blonde, right? Right. Okay, the reason they knew that he wasn't the, the mole, because remember, they figure out at the end that someone had to be hooked up with the police, okay? Mm-hmm. The reason they knew it wasn't him is because he kept his mouth shut in jail. He could have rolled on that whole organization and ratted out, um, what was the boss's name? The, the big guy, okay? The one that gets this, uh, what the fuck's his name? Uh, I can, but you Joe, know who I'm talking Joe? about. Joe? Right? Yeah, Joe, who's, who organized this whole setup. You know, they say that he could have rolled on Joe and his whole organization and gotten a, basically walked away. Okay, mm-hmm. but he didn't. He kept mom in jail, and he knew that when he got out of jail, he'd be cool. He'd be set up. He'd have a job, and they'd pay him for what he did, and no worries. You know, that's a very real life thing. If you protect your mob boss, you're 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 going to be okay. You're going to be fine in jail. No one's going to go after you. He'll make sure of that. And then when you get out, you're going to be set up all over again. So maybe Nitro and Crocker know that. I can buy that. Then again, Nitro doesn't seem like the guy to do that, though. He seems like a very Weasley guy. Crocker, I can see. Crocker, right. Being being the honorable guy, yeah, but right. Nitro, you're right. Right, so I can kind of see them keeping Mom and not ratting on Daggett. Because, hey, maybe spending a couple of years in jail is a lot better than having Daggett send someone to kill you while you're in jail. Or pour some of that uh, renew you down your throat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, because <laughs> ex- that, that's, that's, that's true. We know that Daggett is not above killing people. I mean, obviously, he tried killing Matt Hagen, and here he was going to kill anybody or have, not directly, he wasn't going to be the one to pull the trigger, so to speak, but he was going to have... He authorized it. Yeah, he authorized Crime Alley getting blown up with all those people in there. How about the uh, roses at the end of the episode? Oh, I hate that. You do? I hate it. Um, I think it's cliched, and it's a reference to a movie I don't like, so. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Even though the, the shields on the car you, you like? I like the shields on the car because I think it added something where I don't think the roses added much to the Batman mythology. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, look, Batman's brooding again. He's going to leave roses on the street. Eh, you know, but then again, I'm like a really unsympathetic bastard. So maybe that's why I don't like it. You know, who knows? Maybe it's not because it ties into the original, or not, you know, the 1988 or 80, what was that, 88 or 89? 89. 89 Batman film. I don't, I don't know which one it is, but either way, I, I don't like that scene. I, I take it that you like it, though. Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was nice. Maybe it was just because Leslie Tompkins was there, too. But yeah, the, the Tompkins being there is really cool because we get to see, you know, earlier we see that photograph in her apartment of her hugging Bruce right mm-hmm. after the murders have happened. And we see it at the end. He's kneeling, and she's leaning on him, giving him a slight hug. So, yeah, that that's nice, seeing that all these years later, he's still just the hurt little boy, and she's still the mother figure that he needs. But the actual act of laying down the roses, I'm just not keen on it. It's it's I just don't like it. Sorry. Yeah, well, I know you hate the, the original movies, so... Oh, hate isn't even... doesn't even do Come justice... Close. 
to, to the feelings I have for that movie. Despise, loathe. Uh, All those. <laughs> you know, if, if I could burn it from my memory, I would. <laughs> the last thing I pretty much want to say about this episode is there's the scene where Daggett is getting back into his limo after Crime Alley has exploded. And we see Batman's off screen, but like out of nowhere comes one of those uh, police barricades, the horses. And it's very clear that Batman like kicked that thing at Daggett. Yes. It's just, uh, just from off screen comes flying this, this horse. And it just lands right in front of Daggett. I don't know if Daggett looks down or even acknowledges it. It doesn't matter if he does or doesn't. And then Batman comes walking on screen, but it's this, it's Batman just, Again, letting his anger come through. You know, he did it in the beginning when he was beating the hell out of the heavy bag, and he does it again at the end because he just lost. He might have saved people's lives, but he didn't stop Daggett from, you know, achieving his goal. And Batman's just frustrated. There's nothing he can do. He can't punch Daggett in the face. He can't apprehend him. He can't prove anything right now. Maybe maybe Nitro and Crocker will roll on him. Who knows? But Batman, all he can do is just kick something. And again, it's a very childlike act, and I'm, I will say it time and time again: Batman is a child. That's that's his aging stopped the second his parents died. He acted just as a child would. He dressed up like a comic book character, and he's got all these gimmicky gadgets. Just like a, that's this is something. This is exactly how a kid would react. And then kicking a, a, a something in frustration again is a childish act, but it works with the character. Okay, our next episode is Mad as a Hatter, which happens to be one of my favorite episodes, just because I'm a huge Lewis Carroll, Through the Looking Glass, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland uh, fan. Uh, I've mentioned several times that uh, Through the Looking Glass and Alice's Adventures in Wonderland are my favorite fictional works of literature ever. Um, And my AIM name is Mad Hatter Jim, so you can imagine how much I love this. (laughs) But the plot here is, uh, it's the origin, or the first appearance of Jervis Tetch, the Mad Hatter in the DC Animated Universe. Tetch is a scientist at uh, Wayne Industries who experiments with mind control, uh, trying to get computer chips to bring out the untapped potential in human brains. And unfortunately, he's infatuated with uh, a girl named Alice, who's a secretary who works with him, uh, and bears an uncanny resemblance to Alice from Alice in Wonderland. But she has a boyfriend, and uh, Tetch has to resort to mind control to, to be with her, forcing Batman, of course, to interfere. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I love the most about this episode is, besides all the, the references to Alice in Wonderland, which I'll get to eventually, mm. is that Tetch, rep- he represents what any hopeless romantic could become if they allow their insecurities to just completely overwhelm them. Because yeah. like, he even says it, how could she ever love me? Yeah, he's he's completely depressed. He has no self-esteem at all, and uh, he he lets these things, uh, which really don't exist, he deludes himself into believing this stuff because Alice clearly would love to be Tetch's friend at the very least. Uh, but it's it's his tragic flaw, and I do feel sorry for him in that in that way, uh, in that little moment until he he just he becomes he makes her become a soulless puppet. Yeah, at that point, that's that's when he truly becomes a villain. Mm-hmm. It isn't until then. I mean, he regrets doing it, too. Early in the episode, he says he doesn't want to use that on her because she would become just 
a drone. And then when he does actually use it on her, he says, oh, something like, oh, dear, I wish it didn't come down to this. So mm-hmm. you can tell even when he's doing it, he knows he doesn't want to do it. Right. But, you know, it arises the question, did, because in the, in the comic books, uh, you know, it's been kind of hinted that uh, Tetch is a pedophile mm-hmm. who, who loves little blonde girls, yeah. named Alice especially. Um, so, you know, the question arises, did he really love her at all, or was it just because she resembled Alice from Alice in Wonderland? Yes, that's, that, that's true. I never thought about that. That's a good point. Um, but, yeah, the, the references to Alice in Wonderland, of, of course, are all over the place. He says, Kalu Kalei, and when he's, in, when he's all overjoyed at going out on a date with her, and Kalu Kalei is uh, with the uh, walrus from the uh, Walrus and the Carpenter poem, Inside uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland says, and he goes when he when Batman starts to interfere, he goes twinkle twinkle little bat, yada yada yada. Um, when he's finally stopped, uh, a, a big model of the Jabberwock falls on top of him. What's a Jabberwock? Uh, the Jabber. You ever read uh, Jabberwocky, a poem? It's in school. It, it, it oh was, yes, yes. Okay, I forgot yeah. about that. Um. But yeah, really, every character from Through the Looking Glass and uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland uh, make an appearance in some way in this episode, except the March Hare, which is really weird since the March Hare was, you know, the sidekick of Ma- the Mad Hatter. I thought that was kind of weird. So, uh, but I know you, I don't think you like this episode very much, do you? No, it's not that I dislike it, actually. I think it's better than average. But at this point, I think most of the episodes are at least better than average. They've really hit their stride at this point. Um, my problem with it is is that it starts extremely strong. It's like you feel bad for Tetch because, as you said, he is what anybody could become if they let their if they just let themselves be overcome by their insecurities. Okay, mm-hmm. so you feel bad for that. But the second he turns Alice into just that soulless drone. He becomes a villain in my mind, and at that point, the episode just regresses into just... It becomes a Batman episode at that point. We don't see Batman in this episode, I think, for like the first like seven minutes or something like that. I wrote down the timestamp, and I can't... Yeah. Okay, we see Bruce Wayne early on. Right. But we, don't see, we see the Batmobile, and then we don't see Batman himself until over seven minutes into this cartoon. Now... That's real gutsy. The show's called Batman, for God's sakes, but Batman doesn't appear for seven frickin' minutes. Now, that does include the intro. If you cut out the intro, it's probably more like five, okay? But still, we haven't seen Batman at that point. So this is really just an episode about how a little, lonely, pathetic man can become a villain. And then once he does, it just kind of becomes your typical Batman-punches-things-in-the-face episode. And it's at that point that I stop liking the episode. And that, it really brings it down for me, because I think they had this great story going, and then right at the end, in that last act, they're like, oh, it's Batman, we got to have a lot of action, let's have him punch people. Yeah, I understand that. And, but, you know, I mean, it's Mad Hatter in the comics is a murderer. Yes. And, and may, may or may not be a pedophile. Right. So, I mean, it, I guess it had to, it really had to regress at that point, even though it was such a strong episode till then. But there, there's a funny part, we're speaking of the action, where the Mad Hatter asks Batman if he will beat up innocent people, those being all the characters that we see on the chessboard, to stop 
him, the Hatter? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that's clearly yeah. Batman elbows one guy, he like kicks another. Those those are just innocent people who just happen to have those little cards on their head, and Batman just starts kicking the crap out of them. Well, <laughs> he does. I, There's... I'll offer my uh, explanation. You probably won't buy it, but. I uh, remember he does, Matt Hatter does say that those chips bring out the untapped potential in brains, yes. making their bodies stronger. Right, it does. So it, tri- it triples their strength. But so, you know, I guess. This is Batman, though. He could have just right. flipped, I mean, this is, Batman can jump like 20 feet in the air or something. We've seen him do it. He could easily <laughs> just, like, jump up, flip over those guys, kick the axe out of the queen's hand, and you know, then chase after Tetch. He doesn't have to stop him right away, because obviously they have a certain amount of time they have to fill out. But him just beating up... Okay, now, when the walrus and the carpenter go after him, I can understand him beating him up, him beating them up, because they're trying to kill him in that moment. But when the, all those people on the chessboard go after him, they're not overly violent at that moment. They're just kind of trying to grab him and stop him. It doesn't look like they're trying to rip him limb from limb. Except, for, just, the, except for the queen. The queen, right. She is. They're just trying to just hold him in place so Tetch can get away and maybe the queen can stop him. But yeah, he just starts kicking the crap out of them. He just well, and I can understand the uh, two, the walrus and the carpenter, because he didn't know if those were cronies of the Mad Hatter at that point or not. Uh, and, and, you know, talking about them, you know, I know they explain it away with a line, but I just didn't buy Tetch having two guys already suited up and ready to attack Batman because, ooh, he thought something like this might happen. Shoot, I thought I wrote the line down, and now I don't have it. But he, he does say something like, I anticipated this would happen, and it's like, no, you didn't. You didn't think Batman would get in on your little stupid thing to, to swoon this girl? Yeah. It, it was a little too convenient, those guys just walking in and starting to kick the crap out of Batman because Tetch anticipated it. No, don't buy it. That I understand. I thought Roddy McDowell did a great job as the Mad Hatter, though. He did. He definitely did. He brought, much as I said, Adam West brought a lot of emotion to the Grey Ghost. He brings a ton of emotion to touch here. You know, despite the fact that he does turn into just a Batman villain at the end, you feel for the guy. You really do. Anybody who's got any sort of insecurity should be able to look at the Mad Hatter and feel sorry for him. And then... You know, when you add the the voice that that he gives this character, it, it really pulls at the old heartstrings. And he's well, and he's stuck in storybook land too. Mm-hmm. And he's you know he's almost he's not unlike Batman in that regard, and he's almost a kid uh, mentally anyway. Yeah, a couple of interesting things about this episode, and again, this goes back to what are the censors looking at, and what aren't they looking at? First, there's blood, touch, and it's and it's. It's kind of a violent display of blood in a very subtle way, if that makes sense. But let me explain what I mean. Okay, uh, Alice breaks up with her boyfriend, Billy, because she wanted commitment, and he kind of flips out, and they break up, right? Well, mm. the next day after Tetch and her go on the date, she reveals, Oh, Billy and I got back together. Yay! And he sees Billy's picture, and it's laying uh, face up on the desk. And Tetch is holding roses, and he squeezes them, and you hear squishing. You actually hear the roses piercing his skin, and blood, just like a drop or two, trickles down his hand and lands on the picture of Alice and her boyfriend. The thing is, it doesn't just land on the picture, it lands squarely on Billy's face. Yep. And it's like, so again, subtle, but violent, because that's clearly implying that this that Tetch is going to go out and try to murder Billy at this point. But then yeah. that never happens, because he just puts Billy in his service. But regardless, the blood thing was like, whoa, I forgot there was blood in this, and then 
it landing on Billy's face, that's a that's a clear sign of what the Hatter's intent was towards that character. And now the other thing is there is a line where, okay, the two thugs that try to uh, mug Hatter and Alice, mm-hmm. they're climbing up the uh, the bridge. And Batman is, I don't know if he's driving, is he driving or flying? He's driving, that's right, because he's on the bridge and he shoots up in his ejector seat, which is a really cool scene. And when, before he does that, though, as he's just driving along on the police band scanner, the cop says there are two possible suicides on the Gotham Bridge. They actually say two possible suicides yep. in a cartoon. In this, I again, it just—I really want to get a hold of what of, of the censor's guidelines yeah. because it seems so inconsistent what they can and cannot get away with. And I mean, I personally appreciate the maturity that they brought to this cartoon. And hell, oh, I'm glad too. the censors overlooked certain things like this. Mm-hmm. But again, it just makes me curious to know. Why they censored certain things and not other things, or maybe they need to uh, hire people who don't who pay or pay more attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. What What else do you have to say about this episode? I know you love this episode, so I want to make sure you have enough time to, to speak about this one. I don't have a lot more, but I will say the uh, Tetch's uh, really his whole self loathing uh, thing really is like a parallel of the Mock Turtle character from uh, Alice in Wonderland. Because uh, the Mock Turtle uh, is always crying; it, it never stops crying. He's, uh, you know, he he basically hates himself, just like Tetch does. So I liked that. It was clear. It was clearly uh, it was a clear parallel there. I think that's all I can remember off the top of my head. Now, for those of us who have never read Alice in Wonderland, what exactly is the Mad Hatter's deal? And I mean, in the book, not in this show, because I saw the movie, you know, the Disney movie, ages ago. I don't remember anything from it, except the, like the White Rabbit and Alice and the frickin' Hatter and the Cat, okay? And I've mm-hmm. never read the books, either. I've never had the opportunity. To, I mean, I have, I've had the opportunity to, I just haven't done it. But what's the, what's the Mad Hatter character about? You know, it's, it's weird, because I don't remember um, him having a definitive uh, purpose, uh, other than, you know, really just representing the overall... Uh, uh, I guess characterization of Wonderland, which is what the Cheshire Cat says in the book. Uh, oh, you really can't help uh, the madness. We're all we're all quite mad here, and you know, Mad Hatter is supposed to be the, uh, as far as I know, the head of that, the or the uh, clearest example of of the overall insanity of of the land. I'm trying to think. You could, the, the Hatter character was based off of a real life person, oh, was it? but I don't remember the the, the uh, character or the person's name in real life. Huh. And I I feel stupid because I should know this since well, I love the book so much. I, I know Alice was based off a real girl, right? She, definitely. She was what, like a 12 or 13 year old girl, I think, or was she younger than that? She may have been. Young, I think she was younger than that. I okay. think she was only seven or eight. Ooh, because ooh. I, okay, yeah, I was way yeah, yeah, uh, because Carol. Uh, Based the book off of of uh, this girl Alice because of her and in, her intelligent curiosity, I believe is what he said, what Carol said, just her her innocent intelligent curiosity. Was excuse me, was there anything going on between Carol and that girl? James Joyce has, I think, made some uh, either accusations or uh, explanations of what he thought was was happening, but. I don't think anybody even knows 100% sure to this day. Because the reason I asked is because I was wondering if then that's why they made 
in the comics, the Mad Hatter kind of gave him that edge, where mm-hmm. maybe he's doing that with little girls, you know? Yeah, the Arkham, yeah, the Arkham Asylum uh, trade paperback. I remember that's where I think that's where they really made the most outright hint towards his maybe he's a pedophile or maybe he is. Okay, yeah. So yeah, you know that like I said, that begs the question: Did did they bring that into his character because of what was maybe going with Carol, or did they just I would, bring I it would in say yes. It... I would definitely guess yes. Okay. Because Carol, you know, uh, Lewis Carroll himself had pictures of little girls. Now, uh, one, and they were nude, but oh. well, the thing... back then... Yeah, they didn't, you know, they didn't know if it was supposed to be erotic or not. Right. Was it art so or is that... it eroticism? I mean, there's a fine yeah. line. They don't, they just don't know. Would you mind covering Dreams in Darkness? Because I'm very clearly blurring this one with the other Scarecrow episode we spoke about earlier. I'm, I'm having trouble keeping the two separate. No, let me okay. just uh, get my notes here. Okay, let's see. Our final episode today is Dreams in Darkness, uh, the 28th episode of Batman the Animated Series. This is actually uh, the final time that Scarecrow is the main villain in the original Batman series, uh, until Gotham Knights comes around. Um, Batman is uh, trailing a, somebody who's stealing water uh, water filtration equipment because he no, he uh, has deduced that somebody's going to try and poison uh, water supply somewhere a, 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 on a grand scale, and he accidentally gets gassed uh, with this uh, hallucinogenic drug vapor, uh, and he ends up. Fall, uh, driving the Batmobile off of a cliff near Arkham Asylum, the and the, uh, the staff of Arkham Asylum finds him in the ditch and takes him inside in a in a straitjacket because he's you know rambling all this stuff. Oh, he's gonna he's gonna poison the water supply and all. And Joker's got a gun and all this stuff mm-hmm. that you know they say they obviously would think makes no sense. Right. So uh, Batman has to figure out how to get his sanity back more or less, and get out of Arkham to stop the Scarecrow, because he knows that there's only one person who can do that, have that kind of hallucinogenic gas. So I believe that's about it. This might have been the darkest episode yet. Might be. It's arguable, but... Oh, no, I can tell you right off the bat, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. There is a scene where Batman is hallucinating, and he's watching his parents walk down an alley. They stroll into a uh, an underpass that becomes a revolver, and then yes. explodes. I mean, granted, it fires, but there's an explosion that comes out of the tip, and it's like, holy mother of God! And did you notice that blood was pouring out of it? No, my no, was there? That was that to me looked like blood. Oh my God. At, at first, when I looked at the scene that it immediately followed it, I thought, oh, there's a fire. Maybe it's you know lava or something. But uh, no, that was blood. I will check that. I'm writing blood from gun right now because I I didn't notice that. But whoa. it wasn't you no, know, it wasn't dripping either. It was pouring out of the gun. Yeah, but that scene alone makes this the darkest episode we've covered to date. Um, it might be the darkest episode in the entire Batman animated series as well. There's Could some be. there's some pretty dark ones when we get into the second Batman series. My God, are there some dark oh, ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, this very well could be the darkest one in all of Batman animated series, just for that scene alone. That scene is, again, 
what the hell were the censors allowing? You know, yeah. and geez, and like I said, I don't mean to sound like a prude. I don't want people thinking that I wanted them to censor this. I just no. find it curious how they could allow something like this and then get their panties in a bunch when we see Batman gambling while undercover. Yeah, you know, it's uh, like okay, I just don't get the mentality of these people. They, yeah, I don't, I don't see. They don't have their priorities straight. Yeah. at all. Yeah, but hey, again. We're definitely glad they overlooked it because it yes, made this yes, episode yes, yes, yes. all the better for it. Because if it weren't for that scene, you, you you truly wouldn't be in Batman's head if something like that. If you didn't see something like that, if you just yeah. saw his parents standing in the alley, it'd be like, oh, okay, look, it's another cliched scene of Bat- Bruce's parents standing in the alley. No, we see them walk into what turns out to be a gun and then get shot. Oh my god! And then, as you said, blood pouring from the. Oh man. Yeah, the hallucinations were just overkill in this episode, just nonstop, and they—they they were much darker than the first Scarecrow episode by by far. Even with that death-looking thing, I remember in the first episode, yeah. they were—that was all. This stuff was even more. And again, this one, as I said earlier, brings us back to what the Scarecrow is about, and that's bringing out your most deep-rooted fears, Bruce's fears. Bruce's, you know, fear of what happened to his parents. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's still traumatized by that, obviously, because he dresses up like a frickin' bat, okay? Um, no, no sane person does that. So Batman's got some issues, okay? But then there's other fears that come to the surface. Twice, as I said earlier, at least twice, he dreams that Robin is dying. The first is that he goes off the road because he thinks he sees Robin standing in the middle of the, of the mountain highway. And he doesn't mm-hmm. want to hit them, so he swerves goes off the road, crashes into the tree, and that's when he ends up in Arkham. The second is when he's being brought into Arkham and he's ranting and raving, he says, Robin, it's a trap. Joker's got a bomb. Jason Todd. Right, a very clear (laughs) reference to Jason Todd if you know the history. But again... That's another mention of the of Robin dying. So he doesn't want to, you know, just as he's uh, mournful over what happened to his parents, he's afraid that the same thing is going to happen to his adopted son. So again, this goes, you know, they're getting the scarecrow back to his roots. It is is exactly what they're doing here. Uh, the you know fear of victory, you know, it's a decent episode for what it was, but I think this one is above and beyond that one simply because they brought back. Uh, they, they brought the Scarecrow's drug back to what it should be. They didn't just have silly monsters flying around. Yeah, and this is... I i don't know if this if this was a uh, coincidence or not, but this was clearly like uh, one of the plots in Batman Begins with the water supply. Yeah, this... Remember, we had that... We had, you know, a, a listener suggest that the first Scarecrow episode influenced Batman Begins, and he's right, it could have to an extent, but I think this one if they drew influence from the cartoon, is the one that gave us Batman Begins more than that, more than uh, the first Scarecrow episode. Yeah, because this one also takes place in Arkham's basement, just like the movie. One problem I have with this episode, Bruce went, or, well, Batman left his blood at a hospital. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> any, any kind of registered nurse, doctor, whoever could find out who he is. Yeah. Anybody. Anybody who works in that, in that hospital could find out who he is. But that plays into a little episode of Justice League called Epilogue. Yes, it does. So, Which is one of the greatest things they've ever done. So, you know, in that episode, Amanda Waller says he left his, he left his DNA all over town. Not remotely what I meant. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> is, that line is genius. Oh, my God, yes. Um, 
But anyways, again, just a truly mature line. But it's true. Batman's going to be bleeding all over the place. Think about it. In the very first episode, on Leather Wings, his mouth is bleeding. There's going to be blood on that rooftop. Here, he left it at the hospital. And there's going to be other times where he gets sliced up and blood's just dripping places. And the police or the CIA, or the incontinuity groups like Cadmus or Star Labs are going to be collecting that to try to figure out who this freaking guy is. So while it, you're right, it is irksome that Batman would have left his blood there, it, at least they brought it back, and they made yeah. something out of it, and they made something very good out of it. I mean, they made Batman, be, or, uh, Batman Beyond out of it. Well, that's true, but I mean, the, what irks me about this... Well, in that in the epilogue episode, he it's in an alley somewhere where he just was in a fight, and he he wouldn't know exactly where his blood fell. He clearly knows that he that blood is on that microscope. That's true. <laughs> Here's another one. I'm sure you'll love Stop. Jack Na- Stop. Jack Napier. Stop. Jack Napier. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Oh, <laughs> please. It's an please alias. Tell- it's an alias. That's alias. The, the Joker saw a movie where there was a character by the name of Jack Napier, and he said, "I like that," and he used it as an alias. That's what it is. That's that's all it is. That's all. Uh-huh. Stop. Stop. <laughs> I knew you'd have fun with that, you. Oh, yes. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I... I, I, I okay, here's, here's, my, here's my thoughts on the Joker having a name. The one villain Batman can never figure out is the Joker. We, the readers, know the Joker's origin because we read The Killing Joke. We, we know that that is... It may not be his definitive origin, because as the Joker says, and I said this in a previous episode, he prefers his past to be multiple choice. But DC has basically come out and said that is his origin. So, okay, we accept it as his origin. In that story, he is never named, ever. He's got a wife in that story. His wife is pregnant. She never calls him by his name, ever. So even in the Joker's own past, he doesn't have a name. And Batman, I don't think he knows any of that stuff about the Joker. Okay, so we're getting that all from the Joker's point of view through these really random memories that he's having. So the fact that Batman can't figure out how the Joker began his career and who he used to be prohibits him from trying to help cure the Joker. So by giving him a name, by saying, oh, it was this guy by the name of Jack Napier, it's like, no, Batman shouldn't know that. The world at large shouldn't know that. The Joker was just a normal guy who had one bad day and snapped. That's what I like about the Joker. When you give him a name, you take that away from him. Well, at the very least, it wasn't Joseph Kerr. Yes. Oh my God! Please don't bring up Ugh. Joseph Kerr. Even even that, I, I I'll give you that. That's just horrible. Let's, let's let's forget about Jack Napier. I'm taking a. Yeah. Go ahead and say something else. I know you want to clear that out of your head. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, oh, the, the straight jacket. Now Batman gets out of a straight jacket and be a clown. While underwater, mind you, hanging upside down, but he can't mm-hmm. get out of a straitjacket when he's on Arkham? Now, okay. Without an axe? Yeah, without an axe. Now, okay, sure, he's, you know, he's under the influence of a toxin, but still, it's a straitjacket. Come on, Batman, he can, you can get out of this thing. I know, he's a master escapologist, so, I mean. You know, again, I just think that was a, a little bit of poor writing, and I hate to say it was a bit of poor writing, because this episode was written by Paul Dini. Well, maybe it was just, you know, they slipped, it slipped their mind. Maybe. That's all I can say. They just didn't think. I would like to know how Batman got that axe and, and positioned it perfectly against the wall with his hands behind, behind his back. Did he use yeah. his teeth? Did he use his feet? What the heck? Did he use the ears on his mask? What did he do? <laughs> maybe he used his teeth. I don't know. Yeah, it's... Uh, that's, the only, that's the only way I can see it happening. Yeah. And worse yet is that those guys are shooting at him with those trank darts, and he ducks mm-hmm. around the corner. They see him duck around the corner, yet they walk right past him. 
as after after he ducks around the corner, they just keep going right past where he walked. It's like, no, you saw where he went. He made a left. He's right there. And uh, and just a few seconds after that, after Batman's finally out of the straitjacket, one of the guards has this gun, and he shoots at Batman. Batman steps aside, and the trank dart goes through his cape and hits one of the guards, like, in the shoulder or the chest or something. I didn't like that. Really? Yeah, because... I liked it. Here's why I don't like it. He just stepped aside what could have been a lethal round. Thus, that guard could have died. Batman would take that bullet, then let someone else die. I just... I, I didn't like that. It's a cool visual... But I don't believe Batman knew that there was a trank dart in that gun. Do you not agree with me? I don't me? know. Well, I don't know because, you know, Arkham Asylum uh, is a rehab center. Uh-huh. So it doesn't seem to me like they would have a bunch of lethal guns laying, laying around to, to uh, subdue a an, like, an escape. But it's a rehab center filled with the like most criminally Cream of the crop people of, in the world. I mean, yeah. the Joker has murdered thousands of people. They never quantify it in the comics or in the cartoon, but he has literally murdered thousands upon thousands of people. Two-Face himself has murdered a, a nice amount of people. Everybody in there, at least from Batman's rogues gallery, has murdered people, or at least really attempted to, in the case of, like, uh, Poison Ivy. She tried to kill Dent. Um, so... They would have, in, in my opinion, they would have lethal ordinance in there just in case something really went wrong. Like if uh, all of them escaped at once. Uh, I'll, I'll agree to disagree. Okay. Just because the way, if if we're made to assume that Jeremiah Arkham is, he, you know, he's never mentioned in the show ever, but if he is in charge there, he, uh, he's, he's not a guy who goes and would uh, kill one of the inmates. He's he tries to, you know, rehabilitate them. So I just I don't think I don't see the violent weapons being present for for the inmates. Okay, okay, I see where you're coming from. But again, as much as I dislike the phrase, you're right. We're just gonna have to agree to disagree on this one. We should probably get back to the the actual story though of yeah. Batman trying to stop the Scarecrow here. Um, mm-hmm. They end up in the basement there, and there's there's a bit of a there's a pretty big error in that scene. The clock goes from 1 minute 45 seconds having been stopped to when Scarecrow restarts it to only 13 seconds left. Yeah, I noticed that too. Where did those other, you know, what, 90 seconds go? They just disappeared. You can't tell me, oh, I I had this backup lever and it shaves off 90 seconds from the clock. What? (laughs) No! That doesn't make sense. And furthermore, when one of Scarecrow's goons starts the device, I'm pretty sure he says, nothing can stop this now. Implying that once you turn it on, there is no off switch. But not mm-hmm. only did Batman turn it off just by pulling a lever, the Scarecrow had a backup just in case yeah. it stopped, a even though below. it should have never stopped. It's like, wait, what? You know, if they would have cut that one dialogue, I wouldn't that one line of dialogue, I wouldn't take an issue with it. But that line's clearly there. I, that guy says something to the effect of, "Nothing can stop this. Nothing can turn this off now." And I don't think mm-hmm. he meant it figuratively, like no one can stop us. I I took it literally as in. This is on. You can't shut it off. It's going to... Yeah, we win. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's just a little irksome to me. I totally agree. Huge plot hole. Animation-wise, though, there's a shot right at the end. Um, I don't remember something... I think it's after the that whole device just just exploded, okay? There's a shot of Batman just in all red and black, which are colors we normally don't see Batman in. Normally it's blue and black. He's just red and black, and it's this really cool scene as he's watching... 
that whatever he's watching at that moment. Did you have you did you notice that? It's when uh, the machine is exploding. Is that when it's? I think it's when it's I exploding. Think. It's right at the end. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just an interesting take on it because again we don't see at least until Batman Beyond we don't see Batman in red and black. He's always blue and black or gray and black. You know, so to to, to give that little. To, to cast him in red, I know it wasn't their intention, but it could all, you could almost claim it was foreshadowing towards Batman Beyond. Yeah, uh, well, it was kind of like the orange tints from uh, Beware the Great Ghost. Yeah. When he first enters the uh, basement there, the whole uh, Joker, Penguin, Two-Face hallucinations, wow. Just one to the next, and, and how their music keeps changing one into the other. We go from the Joker music to the Penguin music to the Two-Face music. And it's really cool how they're able to just go from one beat to the next. But at the same time, and maybe this was their intention, so this way the censors did overlook it, it kind of it it lessened the impact the scene had. Batman is dreaming that some of his darkest, most violent villains are trying to murder him by dragging him into this pit. But we're, we're getting this kind of upbeat music for all of them. And what's, what's the Penguin's music? It's like, dun-dun. Dun 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 dun. You know what I mean? It's kind of like this yeah. uplifty kind of jokey music to show you're not supposed to take the character too seriously. But th- they're using this kind of lighthearted music against these scenes that should be really dark. And like I said, I just felt it lessened the impact of that. I thought what I thought was weird though is when he just starts screaming at the when the hallucinations are dying down a little uh-huh. bit there. It, I think he should have lost his mind there. Yeah. I, because he never, he does. It's not like he gets over them or fights them off or whatever. No. It's like or goes and just like I won't, you know, I won't let you control me or something. No. Some kind of phrase. He he loses his mind he, or and he should. He falls into the abyss, which leads to the scarecrow's mouth, and then mm-hmm. he just starts screaming. As you said, no, you're right. Batman should have snapped there. Very 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 clearly should have snapped there. But what were they going to do? Have Batman lying in a puddle of his own pee-pee and just, yeah, just drooling and become a catatonic mess? I mean, well, I, I understand where you're coming from, but you also have to understand mm-hmm. why they couldn't do it. Yeah, I know. It's just, it makes no sense. Now, <laughs> and but and how did Scarecrow not hear all this yeah, screaming? He wasn't that far away. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Clichéd or not, you know, the bat shadow covering him as he sleeps. It was kind of cool. It was it was cliched, but it was it was a nice little touch at the end of the episode. Yeah, especially an episode this dark. Right, right. Because again, we get Alfred in that father figure role. You yes. Know, put it, he's putting Bruce to bed. It might be in the cave, but he's putting Bruce to bed. Making sure he's okay. He knows he's safe down there. He consoles him, and then he goes away and lets Bruce just rest. Because that's you know what they set up earlier in the episode was that Bruce has to take this formula, the serum or whatever that will knock him out for two days, but will get that crap out of his system. Mm-hmm. So he's finally taken it, obviously, and Alfred's just going to let him, you know, quietly remain in the cave. So I think the last thing I want to say about this is more Torchy, please. I want more Torchy. Do you remember Torchy? Torchy? Torchy. Oh, my God. He's almost as good as Captain Clown. He was the guy that the Scarecrow hired in the beginning that had both a, a flamethrower oh, and yeah, a torch yeah. and a drill for a hand. Yeah. Come on, that guy's <laughs> awesome. I, uh, granted, he was just a throwaway thing. that they Maybe he's a Batman villain in the comics. I don't think he is, though. So I think they created him just for this. But I would have loved to have seen this character come back up. I mean, he's got a drill and a torch for a hand. And it's not like it's some device that he wears over his hand. No, it's very clear that he has no arm beyond, like, his, he, his wrist. Yeah, yeah. like, mid-forearm, actually. 
that's yeah. where the device starts. It's like, ooh, that's kind of a morbid uh, character there. He's got no hands, so they put a torch and a drill on his hand. <laughs> and he's trying to drill Batman's face off with that thing. I really would have liked to have seen... Hell, I would have liked it if a lot of the goons we saw that the various guys had hired popped up from time to time. I think, uh, in that case, Torchy should have replaced uh, Roxy Rocket later on in the uh, in the Superman-Batman show. Now, I remember her. What was she doing? In, in... She rode on that rocket all over the place, yeah. stealing stuff. So what did you give Fear of Victory out of ten? Uh, 6.5. I gave it a 6, so we're pretty much even there. Uh, the next would be Clock King, or The Clock King, Same. actually. Same, 6.5. 6.5. Appointment in Crime Alley, what'd you give that one? 7.5. I give that one a 7. That's, uh, that is such a, that is a really good episode. I love, yes, I, I said it earlier, and I'm gonna say it again, that trolley car scene is just, it's so intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a really cool Batman moment. Okay, here's the one. Mad as a hatter. <laughs> All right, I'm allowed to overrate one. Oh, exactly. Eight. Eight. Eight out of ten. Okay. Um, Like I said, I'm going to give this one a six just because I don't like the way it ended up. If Mm -hmm. it had remained... Which I totally understand. Right. If it had remained the way it started, I would rate this one higher. I would give this one a seven, possibly an eight, but because it really fell into just action mode... Not mm-hmm. keen out. What I will get, what I, one of the things I did like about that episode, though, and I, I'm sorry I'm bringing it up now and not earlier, is the fact that Batman clearly cheats. And that's the whole thing with Batman, you know? To win a fight, he'll cheat. It's what he does. He's not going to play mm-hmm. by the rules because there are no rules. When he's trapped in that maze, instead of trying to, like, navigate the maze, he just climbs on top and runs over it. He's, he's just mm-hmm. running along the top of the cards. I thought that was a really funny kind of moment, even though I don't like the fact that it's regressing the action mode at that point. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a funny little thing. So, But anyways, okay, on to the last one that we spoke of, Dreams in Darkness. 7.5. 7.5. I'm giving that one a 7. Steady, Dick. You can do it. No! I'm not afraid. Not afraid. I'm not... I learned to walk on a high wire. Now I can't stand on a step stool without freaking. I'm... I'm no good to you anymore. Easy, Dick. It's bound to wear off. But in the meantime, you've got to fight it. Regain control. Come on. Where? I thought we'd catch a game tonight. The Gotham Knights are favored four to one thanks to their quarterback, Mitch Knoll. You think he's gonna get a telegram? I'd say it's a good bet. I don't know. I'll only get in the way. You can be my extra set of eyes. Get in. I'll drive real slow. Feedback in the form of emails and MP3s can be sent to worldsfinestpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to visit our forums, which can be found at worldsfinestpodcast.com. Next time on World's Finest Podcast, we'll discuss five more episodes from Batman the Animated Series, those being Eternal Youth, Perchance to Dream, The Cape and Cowl Conspiracy, Robin's Reckoning, and The Laughing Fish. For James Doe, I'm Michael David Sims saying thank you for listening to World's Finest Podcast. (laughs) 